Well, as we read in the scripture reading, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and you can go ahead and turn to that passage. We are going to finish this chapter this morning, and uh, as Pastor Becker said, this could really use a big exclamation point at the end of the chapter, because that's exactly what Paul's doing is just showing the awesome victory that Jesus Christ has given to each one of us. So we're going to be looking at verses 50 through 58 and talking about ultimate victory. The ultimate victory that Christ has won. An unknown writer gave this following statement. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. Now again, I'm not sure who wrote that, what preacher's known for that, but it really gets your attention, doesn't it? There's no escaping the reality of death. Well, there's only one way we're going to talk about in our passage this morning. But, but generally speaking, there's, there's no escape. And we understand, again, we're, we're talking about resurrection in our passage this morning. The, the great enemy of this passage is death. That's what Paul's talking about and how the resurrection gives us hope beyond death. Man has tried to beat death since the beginning. Even today, people try to beat death, right? We're always looking for the elusive fountain of youth, as it were, some way to prolong earthly life, to preserve earthly life. But there's only one person that's ever truly beat death, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's the message of this chapter. Again, he has brought ultimate victory over death. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is continuing to demonstrate the assurance and necessity of bodily resurrection for the believer. And it seems, as Paul comes to verse 50 through the end of the chapter, that one thing he's answering is the thought of, what about those who might still be alive when this resurrection was to happen? And he gets into that in this this part of the text. But again... It's expressing Jesus' victory over death and how that is going to be applied to each of us in the resurrection. So we're going to break this into three sections and pull some things from the text. And again, the theme for me of this part of, of chapter 15 is victory, victory, victory. And so we've chosen that in the points. So we're going to talk about everlasting victory in the kingdom of God and describe what that's talking about. Complete victory over sin and death and boundless victory in daily life. But the, the refrain is victory, victory, victory that Jesus Christ has wrought. So let's look at our text. We're going to begin in verse 50, and let me read 50 through 53 again. We're going to walk through this portion first as we talk about everlasting victory in the kingdom of God. Again in verse 50, he writes, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, sh- we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. One thing that Paul's expressing here again is simple. Our natural bodies cannot inherit God's heavenly kingdom. It cannot, it does not work. He's talking about a necessary change. 
Now, the kingdom of God, let's talk about this phrase. As he mentions in verse 50, it's about inheriting the kingdom of God. You can't, flesh and blood cannot. The natural earthly body, in other words, cannot go into God's eternal kingdom. That's really what Paul's saying here. Another reason that resurrection must be, must occur. Now, generally speaking, you can say that the kingdom of God is where God rules. There's sort of a definition you can use that you could almost apply in every text of Scripture. It's where God is, is ruling in a sense. Now, as a believer, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when God rules in your heart, then the, then the idea of the kingdom of God is realized in your life. Those principles, the principles of God's kingdom come out in your, in your everyday life. I believe this is uh, what Paul talks about in the book of Romans, chapter 14, 16 through 18. You can make a note of that. I'll read it for you. But Romans 14, 16 through 18 states this. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. See, there's an aspect that the idea of the kingdom of God uh, is God reigning. And, we're, and, and the whole of creation is moving toward, toward a time where God is reigning over everything in a direct way. And there's no rebellion, there's no sin and death left outside the lake of fire, we might say. But that's when the kingdom of God is being lived out in your life. The principles, the basically what the Spirit's doing in your life comes out, and you are a living example of God's kingdom on the earth. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? But yet, in the future, again, all of creation will be established as the kingdom of God, both heaven and earth. We know God reigns in, in heaven right now, in the third heavens, but creation is tainted with sin and death. And the whole creation groans for a time when that's all in the past, and God's moving it there, and one day, he will reign over all. There's coming a time when God's kingdom will move to the earth through the person of Jesus Christ, and he will rule and reign. And he will rule and reign for a thousand years, and then after that, it will move into eternity, but the earth will be brought back into the direct reigning of Jesus Christ, basically, of the reigning of God. The kingdom of God will be here on the earth. And it's a kingdom that the apostles in Christ talked about. The kingdom of heaven on earth that the prophets foretold and so forth. That's coming. But yet there's also the kingdom of God for us. The heavenly kingdom as Paul calls it in other places. But that's when we go home to be with the Lord. You know, we're under his reign. We're under his supervision. That's what this, this phrase is talking about. It's a broad term that captures everything under God's rule whether heaven, earth, or your heart. And Paul says here, though, when he's talking about the kingdom of God here, he's talking about you stepping into eternity, into the presence of God, and experiencing the kingdom of God in that sense. And he's saying here, you can't do that as you are right now. Your physical body is not made for that. It can't handle that. And thus, we all need resurrection. That's what he's saying here. Again, he says it, or excuse me, corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This physical body is not built for eternity with God. Thus, you need a new, resurrected, spiritually powered body. And that's what he has in store for each of us. On a different note, it's interesting that he uses the terminology flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, you know, that's kind of an idiom in a sense. We think of that as a phrase that refers to our body, our physical body, flesh and blood. We use it probably in our own day and time and culture. Um, But interesting, when Jesus Christ arose from the dead, he uses the phrase uh, flesh and bone, and it's found in Luke 24, verse 39. It's another verse you can make a note of, but Luke 24, 39, and I'm going to read that passage. This is words of Christ there after his resurrection when he appeared to his apostles and he said this, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Christ, um, he talks about flesh and bones there. He has flesh and bones. What's interesting, he doesn't say flesh and blood though. And 
you know, we know what happened at the cross. What did Jesus do at the cross? He shed his blood. And it starts to maybe build this picture that in the resurrection, there's not blood. There's flesh and bone of some sort of a, in a physical way, but it's also a spiritual body. It's called, it's kind of a concept hard to draw, right? But, he, but it seems that blood is not involved and that the, the, the resurrection body is powered by something else. Let me read another passage from the Old Testament to kind of make the point here. Leviticus 17.11. Way back when Moses was given the law and the sacrificial system of Israel was instituted, in Leviticus 17.11 we read this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, to, given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So the principle is blood in the human body, that's the life force of the body. Without blood, you don't live. We all understand that, right? When you, you get wounded and you, you bleed too much, you die. Because of how, how your blood operates in your body. So it seems that once we leave behind this earthly body, we're leaving behind blood as the driving force. And instead... It seems that it's the very Spirit of God that becomes our life force in the resurrection. Another interesting thought along these lines is when Jesus did appear to the, the, the apostles and when Thomas was with them later, he kind of spoke to Thomas directly and said, look, look at my wounds, right? He had holes in his wrist or his palms, depending on how you view crucifixion, but he had holes, right, where he was crucified, nailed to the cross. He had a hole in his side and he could actually stick his finger in it. But it seems that there wasn't any blood there, that it was just, you know, a hole, apparently. There's no mention of blood. It would probably, I don't think he was walking around with, like, oozing wounds, and I don't think there was any blood. But it seems to say that Jesus is back in a body of some physical constitution. I'm flesh and bone, but not blood. It's just an interesting thought. When we come back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Um, it seems like God has something else in mind in the resurrection. It's not a, a body that needs blood, but it's a body that's powered on the Holy Spirit alone. That's our life force, the very life of God in and through us. And that seems to be another attribute of the resurrected body. Very interesting. <clears throat> the implications, however, is this. The resurrected body will need nothing of this world to exist. It needs nothing in this world. You and I right now, we need a lot of what this world has. We need oxygen. We need to breathe. We need to eat. We need a nice soft bed at night, right? We've got to revitalize. We need to sleep. And uh, some, of us, some of you tested your blood this morning, I bet, to make sure the sugar levels were in normal range, right? <laughs> You've got to pay attention to your blood because your blood gets off, your body's gone, and, and you could be out of here, right? We get it. But in the resurrection, we will not have those physical limitations It'll be a spiritual body, as Paul calls it earlier in our text. And again, interesting thoughts there. But it has to be fit to dwell in that eternal kingdom of God forever. And I think Paul is kind of peering into eternity future a little bit, if you, could, if you would. And he's saying we've got to be changed to experience what all that God has for us. So the current body can't handle it. We need a new body. And that's something that's being emphasized in our passage here. Then he gets into verse 51, and he starts to give you some timing, I guess we could say, on when you will experience this great change. Verse 51, again, he says, Behold, I tell you of mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We will all be changed. He's talking about the physical body here. And our point from this passage in the next couple is simply that each believer's body will be transformed at the rapture. That this is the change. It's a complete transformation. And he is leaning into, again, the question of, he's been talking about the dead will rise. But the question is, okay, but when that happens, what about those who haven't died yet? What about those who are still living? They didn't die yet. And, and then the resurrection happens. That time comes. And, he, and he's answering that here. Well, they're going to be changed too. It's simple. They're going to be resurrected alive. And we understand that to be talking about the rapture of the church in the future here. Now, Paul says he's speaking of a mystery. Our understanding of mystery here is this is a revelation of God's truth that just hadn't been made known before. That it's nothing, it's not, he's not saying it's so mysterious you can't grasp it. He's talking about 
uh, a mystery as far as is a secret that's being revealed in the present time that it hadn't been revealed earlier. Well, and if that's our understanding and that's correct, uh, then the thought is resurrection was not a mystery. Resurrection was not a secret. Resurrection goes way back into Scripture. Job said he would see his Redeemer on the earth after he died. So he hinted at resurrection. Daniel foretold resurrection to life and resurrection to condemnation, that everybody's getting resurrected someday. That's, that's built into Scripture. Resurrection's not new, but Paul's giving something here that is new, that is before not revealed, so a new element of revelation here. And I think it has to do that he's talking about, since he's talking to the believers at Corinth, people who are, were part of God's church in this present dispensation made up of Gentile and Jew, God had stopped working in and through the nation of Israel and had unveiled a new plan and had been speaking through the Apostle Paul and he was now saving Gentile and Jew through Jesus Christ alone. And I believe here he's describing the resurrection of us, that group of people. And since this group of people was not revealed in the Old Testament, neither was our resurrection revealed in the Old Testament. And he's explaining a new dimension to resurrection here, our resurrection and it's our understanding that this will happen in the future at some point before God pours out his wrath on the earth. That's our understanding, uh, dealing with prophecy and so forth, that there's a time coming when God will finally put his wrath on this world. It's been coming for ages, and he's held back for ages, but one day it's coming. And yet, our understanding is he takes us away before that happens. We'll turn to another passage in 1 Thessalonians in a, few, in a few moments and talk more about that. But Paul's emphasis here is also that, again, it affects the living and the dead. We'll all be resurrected at the same time. And in verse 52, he gives some more characteristics of what's going to happen when that time comes. He says, in a moment. And the word moment there in the Greek is the word atomos, from which we get the word atom. You know, we think of atoms make up everything, and atoms are generally thought of to be indivisible. If you do divide certain atoms, you get nuclear explosions and things like that. But, but an atom is kind of the generally thought of as the smallest building block of matter, and that forms molecules and so on. But atom in, in atomos in the Greek just meant something indivisible. And when he says this is a, he's saying a moment of time, he's saying like in an indivisible moment of time, so fast... So quick, when it happens, you couldn't divide up the seconds of it. You couldn't sit there and count to three. It's just going to be boom and it's done. He's describing an instantaneous thing here. And that's how some translations render it. Instead of in a moment, it says in an instant. It's instantaneous. When the time of the rapture comes, those living and those dead in Christ will be changed so fast, I cannot even see it. It's so quick. He says it happens so fast, it's in the twinkling of an eye. And people have tried to make sense of what that means, to, the twinkling of an eye. Like, does that mean a, a wink? Like, is it faster than you can blink? Blink and they're gone. But the word for, for twinkling, it, it means like a, like a real quick, rapid movement. And, and some have even went down to like nanoseconds of how fast this might be. I heard one person say it's about six nanoseconds. I don't know how they're measuring that. Pull your stopwatches out, I guess, when the rapture comes and see. But six nano, I don't know. But whatever the point is, he's saying it's faster than the eye can see. Faster than the eye can see. And this is where when you get sometimes when people uh, have tried to visualize the resurrection and particularly the rapture of the body of Christ, sometimes in any depictions, it's like a person's there and then they just instantaneously, instantly vanish. You know, that, that, that's something. And he says that the dead will be changed in an instant and the living will be changed in an instant. So he's giving these explanations here. And he says, at the last trumpet, and that's an interesting phrase, the last trumpet, the trumpets in the Bible were often used to uh, make calls and, and help groups of people know what's happening. There were calls in Jerusalem and for the people of Israel. Trumpets controlled movements of armies, what's happening. Sometimes they were involved in some of the feasts and things of Israel. But, but generally, the trumpet is just kind of like the call. You know, it's, it's, you know, you think if you've got a big crowd of people, you, we've all tried to yell over people, right? You're like trying to yell over them and, 
you know, if you don't have a megaphone, it's hard to be loud enough for somebody to, uh, to hear what you're, what you're trying to say. But a trumpet can kind of pierce the noise and be louder than everybody can hear it. And so it's a kind of a, you know, a convenient thing. Back in those days, you can blow the trumpet and uh, play like a, you know, uh, what do we call it, revelry? Revelry, the, the bugle, you know, wake people up in the morning or whatever, and, or, or taps at night. <laughs> and it's like the call to wake up or whatever in the military sometimes. But anyway, trumpets are used that way. So what is this trumpet? At our resurrection, he's describing our resurrection What's this trumpet? And uh, it seems best just to understand it that it's just God's call home for the body of Christ. Turn with me for a few moments to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this passage gives us a little more insight into this resurrection that Paul is describing here. 1 Thessalonians 4 beginning with verse 13 and we'll read through verse 18 here. In verse 13, he begins, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This gives us a little more insight to what Paul's describing. Again, we have both dead and living in view. And here he gives you even more detail. That when this time comes, when Jesus Christ calls home his church, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the wrath is poured out on the earth, he calls us home. And it says, the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And I would, uh, we would understand that would be the last trumpet he's describing in 1 Corinthians. Again, he's calling us home. And uh, the trumpet is part of that. But it says here the dead will actually rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. So he gives us a little bit of a division that when Jesus does do it, the dead go first. You know, I don't, I'm not really sure why, except maybe, you know, it seems more fair. They've been waiting longer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It just, they dead rise first. So in, a, in an instant, every, every grave of a believer will be empty, and that body will be changed, transformed into a resurrected body, spiritual, powerful, able to be glorified with the Lord. And then he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Now he says, first and then. And again, I don't know that there's so much time you could count down. I think it just, <laughs> if it, that's probably too much time to give it. The dead, the, li, the dead, the living, that's probably too much time to give it. But he's just describing the dead are raised. And then if we're still alive, the Lord tarries, we will live till he comes. Wouldn't that be something? Every generation who's read these words, they want to be that generation of believers who, get a, who don't have to feel the sting of death, you know, that kind of, you know, it's kind of like getting that get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. <laughs> like, they're like, you know, I just bypass this whole mess and go right in there. That'd be great. I'm sure many have prayed for the rapture over the years, and they've said, Lord, come, in times of great distress and tribulation in their own lives, martyrs and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in their hearts would have rather been called home in that moment rather than face the sword or whatever. But God has ordained everything in his time, and, and we may be... Or we may simply not be, and we may be like every other generation, and we may go to the grave, and the Lord's grace may endure for who knows how many more years as he calls people to salvation through Christ. But the thing is, is that one day this will happen. This will happen, and Paul was so adamant that believers get a hold, that you need to live in hope of resurrection, because it helps you not get so caught up in this life that you start to forget why you're even here. And what God's really doing. Because we all, you know, in our human bodies, these natural bodies, we know we, we want comfort. We want 
things not to be too rigorous, not to be too painful because it hurts. And none of us like pain. None of us want to go through that system of pain that may lead to death. But while the Lord may not call us home or through the rapture, he will certainly walk through us through whatever pain or tribulation we're going to go through in this life. But in the, the Thessalonians, they had questions about these things, about resurrection, about when the Lord's wrath were going, was going to be revealed, and Paul wanted them to take comfort. The Lord's going to come. He's going to come in the air. This is why we divide this from the second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ, he comes down to wage war. And he actually splits the Mount of Olives in two when you read in Zechariah and other passages of Scripture. When Jesus comes back, what we tend to call the second coming, he's going to come back all the way down to the ground, take out the enemies, and he's going to set up his kingdom, the kingdom of God on the earth, which is also sometimes called the millennial kingdom. He's going to do that one day. The prophets foretold it. The New Testament apostles affirmed it. It's going to happen one day. But this time when he comes... Some have called this his secret coming because it wasn't revealed before Paul. It wasn't revealed he was going to come back in the air alone and call saints home before some of those other events played out, before the tribulation period come. But that's our understanding based on these texts. And so again, this hope of resurrection is on the horizon for every Christian. And it's meant to help encourage our faith and hope in our good and awesome God and to keep these things in our mind so that we don't get discouraged by the tribulations of this life, or we don't become content when things go easy, but that we stay focused on the Lord and His plans for us. There's a sense to where we should always be living in hope of resurrection, always within, in our thoughts, because that's where we're all heading. Now, in verse 53, as we go on, uh, well, he's been describing it even in verse 52, back to 1 Corinthians 15, but he's talking about Corruptible must put on incorruption. Mortal must put on immortality. And it may be, this is a thought, it may be that Paul's actually still talking about the dead and the living. The dead who are corrupting in the grave, who are decaying, they've got to rise. But also those who are alive, because we're still mortal. When we're alive, we're still mortal. We're, we're moving toward death. Every day of our lives, we're that much closer to when we leave this world and we leave this physical body behind. So it may be that the corruption that he's talking about in the mortal may still be the classes of the already dead and those who are alive, but you're on your way because you are mortal. But he's saying both will be changed. And even so, whether you're dead or alive, you're going to be incorruptible and immortal, meaning that decay will never touch your resurrected body and there'll be no fear of death upon it. Death will never touch you again when you're resurrected. So again, he's going to change us to fit us for heaven, to fit us for that kingdom of God that every saint goes into because it includes heaven and earth and we're all going to live in the fellowship with our God and Savior forever. And uh, I'm very glad we get a new body for that. <laughs> I'm very glad that it will not be limited by the things of this body. And we've talked about that in previous messages, how the resurrected spiritual body that Paul describes will be so far beyond probably what we can even think or imagine here. But as he goes on, and he makes this assurance, and by the way, in verse 53, he's, again, he uses that word for must. It must happen. It must. You must be changed to really become all that God has in mind for you in the resurrection. He's going to, um, basically, our physical body is going to catch up to the rest of us, in a sense, where we can be in God's presence, spirit, soul, body, forever. So verse 54, we, we move it forward a little bit, and he says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And here I've just called this portion of Scripture, Complete Victory Over Sin and Death. Complete victory over sin and death that Paul describes here. First of all, in the first several verses of what we just read, we see that death is swallowed by resurrection, as it were. Death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul reaches back and starts to quote some Old Testament prophets and bring in some thoughts. 
So verse 54, he repeats that idea. We've got to be incorrupted. We've got to put on incorruption. We've got to put on immortality. And when that happens, death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah said in Isaiah 25.8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the, all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. See, the promise of resurrection has always been presented to God's people. He's always given them that hope. There will be a time when the graves are going to give up the dead that are in them. And here Isaiah gives some scripture to that point. This was a promise to Israel to restore them as a nation. And it included their actual physical resurrection. And we believe that that specifically will happen not at the rapture, but actually after that, when Jesus does come back to reign on the earth, he's going to resurrect the Old Testament saints and those who had this hope. And that's what the Bible calls the first resurrection. Now, we laid all that out, I don't know, a few messages back when we were in verses 20 through, I think it was 20 through 26 or something. We went through the order of resurrections, as Paul talks about that earlier in the text. But again, all, all people are going to be resurrected, and all saints have a hope of resurrection. But Paul gives us one that was kept secret until it revealed later, that we're going to be called home before some of these other things happen. But he quotes here that phrase again. You know, I, and, and when Isaiah says it, it's God speaking. You know, he will swallow up death forever. He's talking about God, rather. God's going to swallow up death forever. That's an interesting phrase, right? Just that idea, death swallowing, and yet God will swallow death. You know, you you have to be bigger than death to swallow it, don't you? (laughs) And as big as death looms in the human mind, as we're mortal and we face death and we've said goodbye to loved ones, and as earth-shattering as those instances can be, God is so much bigger. He's so much bigger. And he alone can swallow up death forever. And then we learn the way he did it was through Jesus Christ and resurrection. And so every saint will be raised. And when we're raised, for us, death is swallowed up in victory. God's victory becomes complete for you and I at the resurrection. He says in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Paul's reaching back again. It seems like he's borrowing from the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14. In Hosea 13, 14, it says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. What another interesting phrase where God says, I'm not, I will not have pity on death. He's going to treat death as a really bad enemy because he's going to beat it. And there he uses these, these plays on word, if you will, like, he says, oh, death, I will be your plagues. What, what has taken so many lives over the ages, but plagues and disease and all these things? And God's like, death, I'm going to be your disease. Take you out. You know, it's like really pointing the finger at death. It's kind of fun language here. He says in Hosea 13, 14 again, oh, death, I will be, or no, he says, oh, grave, I will be your destruction. And that's what happens to the body in the grave, right? It just, it's destroyed. It becomes dust. Back from dust we... From dust we came, and to dust we'll return. And, and yet God points the finger at grave, the grave and says, no, I'm going to destroy you one day. And just these, these phrases, and it's, it's poetic, but it's also real. Because he does defeat death, because he overcomes it with something far greater, the power of resurrection. So here Paul is basically taunting death, using the words of the Lord. And that's bold to taunt death. That's bold move, you know. But again, that's the victory. That's how assured our victory is in Jesus Christ. That we, with Paul, can even taunt death. And how many people live in fear of death? Even Christians, you live in fear. It actually still has control over you. And yet in Jesus Christ, that can all be gone. And you don't have to live in fear of death. Death has always been that which swallows up. It is the great enemy of all. It beats down the strongest men. It catches the fastest athlete. It discriminates against none, swallowing all ages and all people. Yet Christ has defeated death, and he swallows up physical death through the power, his power, 
in resurrecting the saints. And again, if the Lord tarries and you and I physically die, the day will still come for us when even your own death will be but a distant memory for you as you stand in the glorious radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? There's coming a day when you'll maybe will look back on your own death. And it like, oh yeah, remember, remember when I died way, 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 way back when? And here I've been living now in eternity with the Lord. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. When your own death is but a distant memory that you have, maybe you don't fully recall. <laughs> you probably remember it, I don't know. But anyway, just interesting. We'll be so far beyond it that it'll be but a memory. As we look at verse 56, again he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And the point here again is simple. Jesus Christ has rescued you from sin, death, and the law. He removes every obstacle for the believer in Christ so that you can live your life now free of fear, free of guilt, in, in just his spiritual power. Verse 56 packs a lot of theology when he talks about sin, death, and the law, all basically defeated by Jesus Christ. He says the sting of death is sin. Well, that's, that's what it's getting at. Sin is what brings death. We die because of sin in the world and sin in us and because we sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. At least the first part of that verse is what it says. The wages of sin is death. That's what sin brings, death. We feel the sting of death because we inherit sin and we're sinners in this world. And thus death is going to be the destiny of all if the Lord tarries. It's a constant reminder that this world is broken. And he says the strength of sin is the law. That means that the law that was given to Moses that revealed uh, the moral character of God and therefore it revealed how ugly sin is in people it's really what the law does. It shows how sinful we really are. It puts a spotlight on our sin and says, no, God's all, really, God is infinitely holy and you're not even on the, same, you're not even on the scale. You can't even get to, get to zero on the scale here of holiness. The law shows it's a spotlight on sin. And Paul in Romans 3.20, regarding the law and its connection to sin... He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, the law just shows how ugly sin is. And because of the law, because that God's holiness has been revealed, there is a moral and holy standard that must be met to receive eternal life from God. That's how scripture points out to us. And every one of us fails. There's none good that... There's, no, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3 tells us. We don't measure up. And because of that, what the law puts on us is the word condemnation. That's what the law of Moses does to every human being. It condemns. And it condemns unto death. The law is a finger that says you should die because of what you've done. And thus it's ever been. But when Jesus Christ came into this world, he took the condemnation due to us upon himself. He went to the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood. He took the penalty of your sins and mine and of all people upon himself. He hung on the cross for six hours, three of which there was darkness upon the face of the land, and he cried out to his own father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning that even in that moment, there was separation between the Father and the Son, which I can barely but fathom what that was like. But that was what was due to each of us. We deserve, in our own sin, to have been condemned and cast out of God's presence forever in the lake of fire, which that day's coming. That's what we deserve. But Jesus came and he took the penalty. And when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior... And by the way, that's all it takes to be saved. If you've never done that before, all you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he calls us to trust in his death, 
that he died for our sins personally, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. And if you say to God, God, I believe that for my salvation, you're saved. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And I can't even count how many things happen to you in that moment. There's so many words the Bible gives. You become reconciled, forgiven, redeemed, justified. There's just so many words. You could go on. But what, one of the things that happens is when you trust Jesus Christ, you are put into Jesus Christ. And as God sees you, he sees you having died with Christ, being buried with Christ, having been resurrected with Christ. And even beyond that, he says you've been raised with Christ, connecting us to his, resur- to his ascension. And he says you're seated with Christ, connecting us to his glorification. That when, when God, if, as it were give this analogy, if God the Father looks to his right hand, there's Jesus Christ, he sees you in that, in Christ. And everything that's afforded to Christ is afforded to you. Now, you're not there in actuality. You've got, we're going to realize that. But that's what this passage is talking about. There's coming a time when we're raised physically. And, and it all comes to fruition. It becomes perfected, complete. And that's what we're using the word complete, complete victory over sin and death. At our resurrection... Everything we've been given in Christ becomes fully realized, and it's all done. But again, you're identified in Jesus Christ, and when that happens, how the law was condemning you, it can't condemn you anymore because in Jesus Christ, you already died. The dead can't ask a dead man to die again. It can't do that. It's already been solved. So you're out from under the law. The law has no touch on you anymore. And you're actually even given Jesus' righteousness. So as far as the law is concerned, it doesn't touch you anymore. It cannot condemn you anymore. So you're free from the law. And of course, he, he took your sin to the cross, and he's freed you from sin, as Romans 6 says. And you know, that's actually going to enable you to live victorious now. And at the resurrection, while you're already free from death in a positional sense, at the resurrection, you will realize it. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll take hold of your physical body as when he calls us forth. And again, salvation is completed and perfected on that day. This is what the Lord can do. This is what only Jesus Christ can do. There is no other way to live outside. I mean, there's just no other option here. There is nothing outside of Christ except eternal separation from God. It's a, we have a wonderful Savior. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of John and Betty Stam. They were missionaries to China. John was actually the brother of C.R. Stam. Some of us know that name and have read some of those books. We probably have some on our book table. And he's, and he's familiar to many of us. But John and Betty Stam, again, were missionaries to China in the 1930s. They met at Moody Bible Institute, just a little ways south of here in the Chicago land area, right, northern Illinois. They were married in China in 1933. They had a daughter in September of 1934. And they were trying to reach Chinese people for Christ. Now, this was as the communists were taking over the country. This was kind of a long and drawn-out thing. And before they had complete control, there was a communist red army that were going from region to region to take over. And they were murdering Christians because there's no room for God or the Bible in communism. And so they were killing Christians. And finally, the communists came to their town where they were at, where they were stationed for the Lord. And they didn't get out in time. And when the communists broke through the gate and came to their door, John just invited them in. And they served the communist army tea and cakes because they were seeking to show the love of Christ to these people too that needed Jesus desperately. And they tried to explain that they were in China for peaceful intentions. They didn't, they didn't mean anyone harm. They were just here to share with people. And they tried to explain it. But in the end, it didn't matter. They were taken prisoner. They were mistreated. They were paraded through at least one town. And then, finally... They were executed in December of 1934 when their baby was only three months old. Their baby, Helen, somehow survived. There's a whole story around her. I think I, she may still yet be alive. I'm not sure, but she, she, she somehow survived. God provided for her somehow through the people there, and they stole that baby away, and she lived, but not her mom and dad, who were just young. They were young. 
Not long before their deaths for Christ, however, John had written his father a letter, and he quoted a poem by J.W. Vinson. And I'm going to read you the poem that John wrote sometime before his death that he quoted. Here's the poem. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain and perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face? To hear his welcome and to trace? The glory gleaned from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart? Darkness light, O heaven's art? A wound of his, a counterpart? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptize with blood a stony plot. Till souls shall blossom from this spot. Afraid of that. You know what he was doing there? He was taunting death, basically. He was in the same spirit of Paul the Apostle saying, Death can't hold me. Death has no power over me. I will not live in fear of death. I will not let the shadow of death control how I live my life for Christ. Because one day it would all be but a distant memory. And so in verse 57, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes you out from under the law. He frees you from sin. And he even conquered death for all of us. And we will all experience that victory with him. Paul gets to verse 58, and with all of this in mind, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He gives us the possibility of boundless victory in daily life because of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Every moment can be victory for the Christian. Every tribulation, every hardship, everything. And so Paul calls us to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. So we put here on, in your outline, the truth of resurrection causes us to abound in Christ's service. Abounding means to surpass, to exceed the ordinary, to be over and above. That's the kind of service that Christ can create in your heart through his grace and power. This is what the truth of the resurrection does in our hearts. We just want to serve Christ, to go over and above for Him. He stirs our hearts so that we want to serve Him in every moment. We want to minister to others, and we want to keep blessing others in His name, just like John and Betty Stam did. And when we walk by faith today in God's truth, and we live in the reality of our hope and everything God has granted us, we can experience boundless victory Because he wins in your life over and over and over again when we live this out. Isn't just pie-in-the-sky stuff. That's there for sure. Some really good pie, I would even say. (laughs) But even now, the victory comes out in your life. Even now, we can be the aroma of life, even in our own physical death. We can be the picture of who Jesus Christ is for the world. And he says, you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's never in vain. The truth of resurrection brings purpose to life. Recently, I did a little bit more involved study of the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, just dug in and spoke on it, wrote on it a little bit. And, you know, in in the book of Ecclesiastes, it gives you a perception of a worldly individual who's basically tried to live for the world and found everything in the world is empty and pointless, and there's no meaning in it, in and of itself. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and we believe it's Solomon writing, he said, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Did you get the point? He said it five times in the one verse. It's all empty. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy the human heart. Every pursuit outside of God is an empty pursuit. 
That's the message of Ecclesiastes. And he laments in that frame of mind. He says, and if you live your life, you get to the end, you look back, it's all been purposeless, and you live in regret. And everything you built comes down. And what you leave to your children gets spent and wasted eventually. And it all ends up being for nothing, for naught. That's the world. A world tainted by sin and death. A world that if you live in the world apart from God, vanity of vanities is all that's left for you. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Everything is empty. Everything is vain. But in Jesus Christ, everything is flipped. What the author of Ecclesiastes said, everything is vain, Paul gives you the exact opposite here. What does he say again at the end? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Nothing you do is empty in Jesus Christ. Everything you do in Christ has meaning, has purpose, because everything you do is now for him and it's in him, and it's through him. And now everything can have meaning. And because of that, everything can be victory in your life. Every moment, we can experience unnumbered victories in Jesus Christ. Because once you come to Christ, every kind word, every moment of patience, every second of helping someone in need, every occasion of faith in Jesus Christ is a victory wrought by Jesus Christ in your heart. Everything has significance now because everything can be done unto him. And thus he says to us, do everything to the glory of God. Because if you're doing it in faith, he's redeeming it right there in the moment and he's using it and it's victory in him. And so we have boundless victory in Jesus Christ. And it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Richard Mao writes this. Theologians tell a story to illustrate how Christ's trump triumph presently benefits our lives. Imagine a city under siege. The enemy that surrounds the city will not let anyone or anything leave. Supplies are running low, and the citizens are fearful. But in the dark of the night, a spy sneaks through the enemy lines. He has rushed to the city to tell the people that in another place, the main enemy force has been defeated. The leaders have already surrendered. The people do not need to be afraid. It is only a matter of time until the besieging troops receive the news and lay down their weapons. Similarly, we may seem now to be surrounded by the forces of evil, disease, injustice, oppression, death, but the enemy has actually been defeated at Calvary. Things are not the way they seem to be. It is only a matter of time until it becomes clear to all that the battle is really over. And that's the truth for the Christian. Victory has already been sounded for the believer. We're just simply waiting to get home and experience it fully. Father, we give you thanks for your words of comfort to us, Lord. May Jesus Christ be magnified in our hearts as we leave today and take away again this the assurance of the hope that we have eternal life in you. We're going to be resurrected one day. And in the meantime, we can live in complete surrender to you and have your victory in our life right now, Father. You save us from the penalty of sin in the past. You save us from the power of sin right now in our present lives. And you'll even take us out of the presence of sin in the future at the resurrection, Lord. Indeed, you are the great victor. And may that always comfort our hearts. And as we leave here today as well, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.